Hello, my name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And this week, we're talking about Charles Burnett. We're getting back to our mandate of important cinema. And ones that are difficult for us to talk about. We should say, you know, off the bat, acknowledge the obvious, which is that we are two white Canadians talking about films that are, to their very core, African-American. Before picking this topic, I had never seen any of his films. I think you had mentioned that you had seen Killer of Sheep, right? Yes, I had. Uh, And I liked it, and Mm -hmm. I still like it. Mm -hmm. So, um, Charles Burnett is a guy that usually you see pop up in textbooks when talking about African-American cinema. Not that often people seeing his films and discussing them. He's also often on those lists of like the greatest filmmakers you've never heard of Mm -hmm. or the greatest filmmakers who have only made a certain number of movies. And I mean, his first one, Killer of Sheep, one of the reasons that he probably got so much buzz around him is that for a long time it was not commercially available. Yeah, it was seen, you know, by, I guess, specialists or people really in the know on kind of dingy 16 millimeter prints. And the reason it was never released was because it has a really stacked soundtrack. It's mm-hmm. got Earth, Wind and Fire. It's got, uh, I don't know, Paul Robeson is on it. A ton, a ton of a ton of other people whose music costs money. And Burnett said that at the time that he was making it, it's such like a film school kind of thing. He's like, I want to make this movie a history of like African-American music. <laughs> and so it's just dropping tracks when he made it of whatever he had on hand. But when it finally went out to release, people are like, you cannot get the rights to this music. So it took till 2007 well, Milestone put yeah. it out uh, was, thanks, with Steven Soderbergh presenting it. I believe Steven Soderbergh dropped a big chunk of change, mm-hmm. which was part of the total $150,000 to be able to clear that music to get it out there. So thank you, Steven Soderbergh. And it was one of those movies that when it happened, like it popped up on a, a bunch of people's top 10 lists, blah, blah, blah. People rediscovered it and like this is an important piece of work. But let's get back to who is Charles Burnett. He was born in Mississippi, but from an early age, uh, his family family moved to Watts, where he was raised. Uh, and, you know, he would have been there for the Watts riots and all of the other unrest that happened in that area. Uh, he was artistic from a young age and became a film student at UCLA. In fact, the same class where uh, Larry Clark was also a film student. Kids himself. I love that guy. We should do an episode on him. <laughs> yeah, we could do I Was a Teenage Caveman. Uh, kids. <laughs> Ken Park. Ken Park. What other movies does he have? I don't know. It, I always get him confused with Harmony Corrine. Well, because they ran in the same circle. Harmony right? Corrine wrote his films. But listen, this is not a Larry Clark podcast. This is a goddamn Charles Burnett podcast. <laughs> oh, no, wait. Please let me hold on to the white guy so I can talk about him. <laughs> but also uh, in UCLA around the same time as Charles Burnett were filmmakers such as Julie Dash and Haley Jerima. I I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing it. Yeah, Julie Dash right. uh, having directed uh, Daughters of Dust, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and together, this was in the late 60s, a time of great social unrest, as I don't need to tell you guys. Uh, and <laughs> you al- baby boomers listening. And also it was around the same time as, I mean, there had been so little black representation on film up to that point. I mean, there had been the kind of Oscar Michaud mm-hmm. or... Uh, the um, Sidney Poitier kind of guess who's coming to dinner stuff. Yeah, and uh, pretty much... Uh, this coincided with the period of the dawn of black exploitation. So in the early seventies, you had sweet, sweet back shaft and their innumerable uh, children. So when Charles Burnett was given the assignment of making a film for school, uh, killer sheep ending up being his uh, thesis project, he decided to portray kind of um, African-American life in a more realist way. He mm-hmm. said one of some of his biggest inspirations were like, um, the neorealist uh, movement that happened in Italy and stuff like that. 
And uh, Burnett and Julie Dash and their compatriots loosely formed what they would call the Black Independent Movement, which, uh, I mean, I I can't say that it was really a a very prolific movement, but it was certainly influential uh, and was an important, I guess, symbolic victory. And Killer of Sheep, the first thing you have to know when you watch it is that there's not really any narrative It'll, it's very episodic, and even these episodes are not supposed to have a dramatic kind of forward momentum, but are just supposed to portray the kind of life that was going on, and there was something that you didn't see in cinema at all. I, you know, given that I've already seen this movie once before, I feel like I ought to have been better prepared for it, mm. like, the second time. Uh, I remembered, of course, that it's about this man who works in an abattoir yep. killing sheep who lives in Watts with his family, just sort of struggling to get by. So I remember that as the basic plot, but I think both times I've seen it, I was kind of stunned by just how sort of plotless it is. Yeah. I was looking around, and I think uh, Roger Ebert came up with a good quote for it. He said, it doesn't come as most films do with built-in instructions about how to view it. So even the little vignettes that comprise this movie's narrative, so to speak, uh, you're right when you say they don't have a lot of forward momentum, uh, but also a lot of these little vignettes don't really even have beginning, middle, and end. No, it's like you jump sometimes right in the middle of a scene, whether it be the protagonist being, and I use the protagonist word very loosely, (laughs) it's the one who's the most little scene center around, is trying to be talked up of doing a robbery that's supposed to happen, but then that is never spoken of again. Right, and there are just, you know, this big tapestry of characters. I mean, it's like a Jacques Tati (laughs) playtime-like environment of just all these people wandering in and out. Many of whom we never see again, uh, many of whom are sort of faceless or sort of blend into the scenery. Uh, and yeah, the, the things they do don't necessarily have an impact on the plot. So what you're looking for are these little details that can make an impact because they're so specific and it's not things that you would usually see. Specifically us as um, white men who uh, yeah. grew up in the uh, 90s and 2000s. And Burnett will also do things like he'll he'll just like focus on a woman uh, rubbing lotion in her legs or there's another scene where a woman's making dinner and she picks up the the lid of the pot and just looks at her reflection in the lid and like you know fixes her hair a little bit just little moments like that he really savors there's and there's another scene speaking of things that don't have forward momentum there's this really long scene where two characters are trying to lift this big car engine out of their apartment and then down the stairs and then into the back of a pickup truck. It's a real truck. Laurel and Hardy sequence of events. <laughs> yeah, it's like Laurel and Hardy like trying to move a piano. But these guys are, you know, just, just trying to move this goddamn uh, engine and then they put it in the back of the pickup truck and then just as they drive off, it falls off the back of the pickup truck and then they look at it and they go, oh, well, and then they drive off. And it's you've spent like five minutes watching this. <laughs> I think that um, one of the things that really popped out of me the first time I was watching was that like, if this wasn't these specific details at this specific time, it could easily be uh, categorized as just a pretentious student art film. But because of the subject matter that he's dealing with, and it not being something that you're that usually that familiar or has been portrayed that much, it feels so fresh and interesting. Well, yeah, it does feel like a very lived-in world. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of details that we're not that familiar with, I mean, it's details we're not that familiar with in movies. Yes, that's I mean, what I mean. Yeah, like I was... I was watching it thinking, you know, it's so rare that we see a black woman in movies, right? Like you can name on two hands, basically. Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg, Viola Davis, you Mm. know, Zoe Saldana, a few others. Like you can name on two hands, basically, all the famous black actresses. Um, 
But how many how 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 often do you see black actresses that look like the black actresses in Charles Burnett's movies? In movies that you would see in the multiplex, never, never. I mean, it's kind of like I mean, it's a bit like Fellini, uh, the way that Fellini would show you the faces of the real people in Rome. Well, Charles Burnett said that Fellini was also a big inspiration ah. on him, and you can definitely see it in this movie. There you go. How do you feel about the movie's depiction of, um, God, for want of a better phrase, ghetto life? I'm not sure if that's a PC term, but... uh... I mean, Charles Burnett said something really interesting in that when he was a kid and um, people would be interviewed if they were poor, everyone would be like, oh, no, we're middle class. Hmm. Like, we're middle class. Like, we can eat usually at home, so we don't have any problems. Nobody... Uh, that he knew, or even the people that are in the film, viewed themselves as poor. They just viewed this as their life. And while they're struggling, they're not in the pits. And almost all the actors in this movie were just people that he kind of knew from around the neighborhood. I know that the movie was shot over a period of years, and he actually said that one of the things that kept the movie from being finished is that one of the actors was jailed (laughs) for a period of time. Well, normally when you see South Central LA in a movie... It's so kind of dramatic, you know, or dangerous. Yeah, it's like Boys in the Hood, or even Straight Out of Compton, where crime seems like this kind of all-pervading thing. Uh, in this movie, crime is a fact of life. It's it's sort of everywhere. It's sort of unavoidable. But at the same time, it's not the only thing that's going on. Yeah, like there's this one scene where um, two men steal a TV and jump over a fence, and they interrupt just kids playing down the yeah. road. And, like, they get yelled at, they run, Mm -hmm. there's some stuff that happens, but you feel like this is not that big a deal. Yeah, and it's just part of the fabric of the community. And also, when they carry the TV over the fence, there's this older guy who's in the neighboring yard who's, like, pretty pretty nicely dressed. He's got Mm -hmm. a nice shirt and tie. And he looks at them with this kind of look of withering contempt, like, listen, we're just trying to, like... Live our lives. Yeah, live our lives here. Why do you got to bring this around here? Um, but you know, the movie, even though it's depicting a sort of middle class, it's very much, there's a big melancholy to the movie, like this main character, this killer of sheep, Mm -hmm. if you will. And the movie is never graphic in its depiction of the slaughterhouse, really. No. Um, that, uh, Charles Murray actually said during this time, um, a lot of uh, vegetarian directors were making uh, films about slaughterhouses and how horrible they were. Mm -hmm. So he really had to coax a slaughterhouse to let him film in it. Because they're like, we don't want you to just show how bad it is. He's like, no, 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 I won't won't show um, sheep being killed or anything like that. Mm. Uh, But this guy, I know that some critical analysis of the film has suggested that his work makes him numb. Um, But I I don't don't think it is. I mean, a lot of this movie... I mean, Burnett is clearly very interested in the family unit. Mm. Uh, but Which I, he is in all of his films. Yeah, but I think he's also very interested in just the idea of masculinity. Uh, I, I'm not sure if this is a popular reading of it or if I'm just making this up out of thin air, but his movies seem to be kind of interested in, like, what does it mean to be a man in society and to be a responsible man? So there's the scene where this guy... Uh, you know, he's got kind of this dead end job and he's got this family that he's got to support and he's sitting on uh, the porch outside his house and these two guys come up and try to get him involved in some crime they're planning. Yeah. We don't really know what the crime is, but uh, they try to get him involved. And then his wife comes out and starts yelling at them, get out, you know, what, mm-hmm. the, what the fuck are you doing here? And he's got this just sort of like weary, resigned look on his face. This idea that, you know, even... You know, it's bad enough that I'm being uh, besieged by these two, like, hoodlums, basically. These two 
guys who just want to like fuck up my life, but I can't even make a decision mm-hmm. about about this. Well, I think that's completely the truth. I mean, if we can skip ahead to some of his other movies, uh, so we came at an impasse where rare in the important cinema club canon, Will watched a movie that I did not watch, and I watched a movie that Will did not watch. So you watched his second movie, which is My Brother's Wedding, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so Killer of Sheep was made in 1977. It got enough buzz. It won but, some awards at some film festivals. But it took until 1983 for Burnett to make another film, which I showed at, I believe, the New York Film Festival. Yes. But was kind of poorly received, or indifferently received mm-hmm. at least. And Burnett said that uh, the editing was taken away from him or that he was forced to rush through the editing. So years later, he made a director's cut that was more reflective of his vision. But it's another movie about life in um, South Central L.A., about this young man in his 20s who basically he's a product of South Central L.A. He doesn't aspire to anything greater than his lot in life. He's kind of content with his lot in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, he works kind of a dead-end job at a dry cleaners uh, in town. His best friend is just out of prison, and they like to hang out. Uh, but his brother is marrying this woman of, let's say, a higher social standing. And this guy's very bitter towards his brother. Um very bitter towards what this represents. Uh, I mean, the movie raises a lot of questions about, you know, upward mobility in the black community, uh, but, none of which I feel qualified to expound <laughs> upon. I mean, I ended up watching To Sleep With Anger, which was a uh, Charles Burnett's kind of big theatrical feature. And this is a movie made possible by the fact that he got a MacArthur grant. Yes, it was $250,000, mm-hmm. which allowed him to survive for five years, mm-hmm. which is something that we don't usually... Um, talk about when it comes to filmmakers making movies, which is like, how do you pay the bills? Mm -hmm. We just assume that because they're making movies, somehow (laughs) an income is coming in. Like, we're never going to talk about, um, I don't know, Peter Bogdanovich. And we were like, well, how did he pay rent that month? Speaking of which, though, how does Abel Ferreira pay rent? I have no idea. This is a question that I always ask (laughs) myself, that like, how do people sustain themselves? So Charles Burnett made this movie, also thanks to the participation of um, Danny Glover, Mm-hmm. who starred in the movie as this kind of, I, I don't want to say evil figure, even though that people in the movie call him that. So the film is about a, a black family who is having a a little bit of turmoil between the younger and older brother and the father, when suddenly an old family friend of the father shows up on their doorstep and starts staying with them. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that classic um, tale... You know, uh, Pasolini directed a film like that with Terrence Stamp. Oh, uh, yeah, Teorama. Teorama, right? Where or or Takashi Miike and Visitor Q. Sure. Where a um, outsider kind of starts pushing things in other directions and starts having things bubble over. But like a lot of Charles Burnett's film, this never goes for the obvious kind of dramatic beats. It's always very gentle in the way things are portrayed, which is what I got from most of the films that I watched by uh, Burnett. And it's also dealing with a kind of poetic magic realism Hmm. that is like most magic realism. They're not flying around on broomsticks or anything like that, but it's still bubbling under the surface. I liked My Brother's Wedding quite a bit. Uh, I thought it dealt with a lot of very interesting issues. Uh, I will say that um, the fact that it's shot in color, I think, you know, maybe it's just because I saw it immediately after Killer of Sheep, it feels a little less timeless to me. Uh, like, Killer of Sheep has this, I feel like, 
it's very realistic, but it almost has this like mythic quality because of the lack of color. Like the shitty 16 millimeter. It has this like well, it's beautiful, like that grounded poetic. kind of yeah. you are there, but still, uh, you know, you, you can't quite grasp it, right? Yeah, whereas by contrast, My Brother's Wedding, uh, I, the flaws in some of the acting um, and and in some of the cinematography were a little more apparent to me. I, I would say To Sleep With Anger kind of has the same problem, but a little bit on a different scale, which is we're getting in the early 90s here, and the film stock that he's using has that weird TV kind of look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like a, a bunch of production in the 90s. And because Burnett's style is not very in-your-face or very visually defined, mm-hmm. that it kind of... And because people are, like I say again, so gentle, it almost feels TV mm-hmm. movie-ish in its presentation. To bring it back to Killer Sheep again... Uh, I was kind of blown away by just the mise-en-scene of the film. Mm. Uh, The fact that it has this real quality of it just being these kind of like really hot summer days where there's nothing to do. Um, And so like there are so many scenes of just kids like hanging around like kicking dirt. Or there's a scene where, what is it, like kind of an abandoned railway car? Yeah, and one of the kids puts himself under the, the, uh, the, the... the wheel and he tries to get the other kids to push the train forward. So it comes really close to crushing his head. Yeah. And it's just like, that's the kind of shit that kids do, right? Just on a boring day where there's nothing to do. Well, I know now they all have their cell phones. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now they're just sitting on the couch, (laughs) not looking up to the real world. And, you know, getting back to that movie's idea of it's so much about this guy who's in a state of ennui and a community maybe that's in a state of stasis like there's this sort of sense that well there's nothing to do around here like mm-hmm. w- what are we going to do for a film that like we keep saying is so plotless it's very dense in all the stuff that's presented mm-hmm. like i feel like me and will could kind of break down each scene and stuff that's happening whether it's like the two characters driving with like no windshield on their mm-hmm. car which is something that charles burnett never really captured again in his other films but he didn't really have that many chances either. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess it's hard enough to be a black man in Hollywood uh, just under the best of circumstances. And if you're a black man in Hollywood who wants to make these kind of like neorealist films about uh, lower middle class or poor lives. You know, yeah, what it's you like, do? I'm sure the producers are like, who is the audience for this movie? Yeah. I mean, The Sleepless Anger was a huge kind of critical success when it came out. It made a lot of top 10 lists and stuff like that. I don't think it made, you know, buck at the box office or anything like mm-hmm. that. But it did give him an opportunity to kind of ride the coattails of the, what would that be called? Like, you know, like New Jack City came out. Yeah, like, like the John Singleton and yeah. uh, I guess even Spike Lee, that era of, there, there was a bit of a, of a, I don't know, maybe fad is the right word mm-hmm. for these kind of like young black Like filmmakers. new gangster, or like new urban gangster films or something right. like that. And so his last big feature film production was a film called The Glass Shield. Which was uh, distributed by Miramax mm-hmm. and stars Ice Cube. And it well, ca- Starring Ice Cube is a bit of a stretch, even though that he's on, on the, the DVD, DVD cover, he's right up there. And so is Lori Petty, who plays a female police officer. And the actually, actual lead of the movie is almost nowhere to be seen on the DVD. Yeah, but it's also got uh, Elliot Gould and uh, Michael Ironside and a few other... Emmett Walsh is also Yeah, Emmett it. Walsh, yeah. Yeah. Who's who's great, I think. Th- this movie, I mean, really uh, caught me off guard after the other two. I mean, it's such a kind of genre film. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a very slick Hollywood film. Stylistically, I think it's like nothing like the other ones I saw. Which is kind of uh, fascinating to see where Charles Burnett could have gone. Because this movie, like you said, is nothing like his other films. He's playing very fast with the narrative. Like, yeah. like scenes don't kind of 
the word gentle, I would not mm. apply to the glass shield. But I think he's also like not a natural storyteller here. I mean, the the, the plot kind of moves awkwardly, I think. Uh, also, the reason it's different from the other ones is that it's so kind of didactic. Mm, yes, the, the other ones very are very in your face. Yeah. And this is the message of the movie. And by the way, I'm not saying I disliked it. Because I liked it. I had a pretty good time with yeah. it. But the movie is about uh, a young black police officer in the LAPD who basically in trying to fit in and trying to become one with the police uh, gets coerced into railroading this potentially innocent guy into a murder charge. Yeah. And then the innocent guy being played by Ice Cube. The kind of procedural element of figuring out like, why has this guy been framed? What other stuff has the um, police department covered up and Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Uh, boy, you know, it sure is interesting how timely this movie is, huh? That's such a <laughs> hack thing to say, but... But here's the thing when I is, was watching But it is it, timely. Like, I checked the reviews when it came out, and it wasn't very well received. It was kind of like, it's on the nose, it's obvious, blah 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 But the thing is, it's like, yeah, but all this stuff is true. Yeah. Like, this stuff is still happening now. Yeah, and I, I mean, this is stuff that I think deserves to be thought about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, this would have been around the time of, like, the Rodney King, mm-hmm. uh, verdict, or, you know, O.J. Simpson, for instance, uh... Yeah, I, I think it makes a very good, it makes a very persuasive depiction of a police force that is sort of rotten to the core. Yeah, and it the one thing that I, I saw a lot of people complain about was that it never kind of uh, delves into any over-the-top violence or anything like that. There's no crazy shootouts, is that it plays things kind of very close to the vest. Yeah, uh, it has such a downbeat ending, too. I yeah, mean, I don't want to spoil it. I mean, we can spoil it because, you know, check out the movie if you want. But what ends up happening is that the lead of the uh, movie, Michael Boatman, um, for most of the narrative, kind of plays in his um, police officer brother's hands saying what they want to say. Until finally, you know, he breaks out, makes the right decision, finds out who the real bad guys are, gets his police precinct shut down. But at the end of the day... That he still brought up for charges that he did lie. And he's the only guy who goes to prison. Yeah, because the other people yeah. ratted out on him. Another black guy taking the fall. Basically. Exactly. And you talked about the film still being um, prescient to this day. And it, weirdly, it played at the uh, Lincoln Center like a few days ago from when this recording is happening. <laughs> I mean, because it is a movie that just got lost to the sands of time. People don't really... I've, I had never heard of it until now. I think it's right for rediscovery. Yeah. Um, as long as you keep your expectations in, <laughs> in check. In check, yes. Uh, but yeah, the Lincoln Center did a big retrospective of Charles Burnett. There was a... Uh, they just did a big restoration of uh, To Sleep With Anger. Mm-hmm. Um, but Burnett hasn't made a feature film since 2007. Um, and it's a film that still ha- doesn't have a proper release in mm-hmm. North America as well, which is like most of his films don't have proper releases like it's weird that someone like criterion hasn't jumped on him as a filmmaker well watch out because criterion just posted a video of him in the criterion closet Char- oh, Charles Burnett. so i think that means that something is coming down sleep with anger is coming out on dvd but by, by the way uh charles Burnett looks great <laughs> does he for a guy in his 60s yeah uh <laughs> I'm but, glad that we can uh, give a physical uh, review <laughs> as well as an analysis of his films. You've been listening to Mr. Skin. <laughs> um, like we mentioned, Charles Burnett, basically since The Glass Shield, hasn't really made a theatrical feature film. He's made a lot of TV movies, some of them very well received. He made a um, slavery drama for the uh, Disney Channel called The Night John mm-hmm. that is very well liked. Didn't get a chance to see it. Made a lot of documentaries as well. Uh, one on Nat Turner, right? Yeah, I mm-hmm. watched a part of it, and it's interesting because it's a mixture of talking heads and kind of 
fictional recreations. Hmm. So he still gets to um, flex the muscles of narrative filmmaking while still being able to make a documentary. Yeah, well, that's great. It's too bad we didn't get more from him. Yeah, I wonder why we didn't get more from Um, uh, Charles Burnett. So summing up. Watch Charles Burnett's films? Yeah, I, I would say that the one the one that like I can really stand by is just a, a stone cold balls to the wall masterpiece is Killer of Sheep. Yes, uh, I I think it's a movie that I think uh, does the service of showing you something very familiar in a new way. Mm. And uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend to Sleep with Anger after Killer of Sheep to see that kind of style evolve into a more uh, focused way using the same techniques he kind of used in Killer of Sheep, mm-hmm. but done in a narrative context and then the glass shield and my brother's wedding and And then check out the tv stuff but i I don't think i can really uh, overstate just how rarely i see a movie that's quite like killer of sheep in that it has characters and has a story somewhat but it's this sort of just weird poetic style like it's a movie that almost the scenes almost like evaporate in front of you as you're watching them Mm. um yeah killer sheep check it out we have a letter this week, right? We do have a letter this week, which you can, if you would like your letter read, send it to Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. I was going to say Loose Cannons, but I stopped myself. <laughs> you can send letters to Loose Cannons Podcast at gmail.com. Oh, yeah, well. sure. No, you're not going to be like, no, boo. L- let's heal the wounds. <laughs> so, our letter is from Kevin Shea. Uh, which, Shay, I believe his name is. I got very excited because I'm like, I don't know who this is, but you're like, oh, no, I know who this is, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's a good dude. Dear bespectacled white man. Wow, okay. Ah, uh, man, that's that's kind of a deep cut. I think that... It's, it's not very nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, we are bespectacled white men. It's true, it's true. But can, 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 is that something we can say about ourselves that he can't? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, well, we are bespectacled white men. I've enjoyed listening to your podcast while running errands and going to the gym. Does that, like, kind of mean that he's trying to say, like, I don't give time for your podcast? Uh, well, in fairness, like I pretty much only listen to podcasts while like commuting. So yeah, me too. Okay. And I don't listen to ours. So <laughs> you two have an excellent rapport. And Thank the, you. And the subjects you choose are a nice combination of films and filmmakers I'm familiar with and others I've since checked out. Oh, thank you. This could sound like we wrote it, but we didn't. <laughs> I also enjoy the gusto with which Mr. Declue pronounces French names, Raoul Quetard, Catherine Brea, etc. Why is it like an Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonation every time? Raoul <laughs> Quetard, Catherine Brea. I look forward to your Jackie Chan episode, which ah. can't come soon enough. Yeah, you're right, Justin. Why haven't we done it? My dream episodes for the future would be Fellini, Spike Lee, Denis Arcand, Errol Morris, Mike Lee, Werner Herzog, Kubrick. Busby Berkeley and the Dogma 95 films. Some of those I think are definitely in the yeah, offing. Definitely. Probably not Denis Arcand. I don't know. <laughs> Come on, we gotta do our we did a Canadian episode, yeah. right? So we never have to do one again. I also have enjoyed the few times you've had guests and hope you will have more in the future. Mm. Oh, whoa, that's uh, a good segue. I think, I think we just might, but your loyal listener, Kevin. Now, I have to say that we, I have an unofficial letter that came into the Loose Cannons offices. I mean, the Important Cinema Club <laughs> offices. Uh, listen, I have two podcasts. It's very confusing. By the way, thank you, Kevin. I'm not sure if I made that clear. <laughs> yes. I, I, and I'm sorry that I pounced on bespectacled my, white men so <laughs> sensitively. Uh, but it's true, we are. I mean, we've been in power for decades, yeah. so I think that we we can give them that the, those words. Yes. Um, so I was talking to a loyal listener, and she said, Will? Me? Oh, yes, okay. you. Not <laughs> as opposed to the other Will. <laughs> she said, I was very annoyed by something that I heard on an episode, which is that Will used the word Catholic 
in its actual context. Now, listener, before I explain this to you, what is the sentence that you said, Will? I said something along the lines of the, the Toronto International Film Festival had a very Catholic programming style. Now, when I hear Catholic programming style, what I think of is either conservative or like something that would uh, reflect the Catholic religion. That is not what you meant. No. What 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 was? What... I used it in the sense of like kind of eclectic and uh, all encompassing. Why did you just use universal? Have you ever heard someone say Catholic in that context in a sentence? I definitely have. Where? Not often, but, I, <laughs> yeah, but I've where? seen it. Uh, Wait, did their monocles fall out after they said it? Well, it... listen, I'm sorry that you learned a new word today. <laughs> I Ooh. did learn a new Boo-hoo. word. Boo-hoo. But the person who said this knew what it meant and was annoyed yeah, so that you why, had used why it. why are you complaining? Uh, I'm not listen, complaining. I'm, I'm only trying to elevate our listeners <laughs> to reach my level. <laughs> to reach your level, where you can be like, mm, I was not a big fan of that orphanage. They're very Catholic <laughs> well, in their that, picks. Oh, well, I would never say that, first of all. <laughs> all right, well, that's fine. So we should have a little uh, special portion at the end of each episode, which is like Will's Word Corner, where you like, teach <laughs> us a new word all and right. explain it to us. All right, well, I make no apologies for that, and I think this person should be ashamed of themselves. Uh, what, <laughs> what are we doing next week, Will? Uh, we're starting Shocktober. Yeah. Crackle, crackle, crackle. <laughs> Uh, All right, so (laughs) whoa, that's me just coming out of will, (laughs) which is a position we have every episode. Um, So we're gonna be doing horror movies for the entire months of October. You know what's really shocking is that? Did you say shocking? Is that have we done a horror filmmaker up to now? Other than John Carpenter, I don't think so. That's insane. Yeah, let's, like let's forty something episodes, and we haven't done anything. But next week we're gonna stay classy. James Whale, mm-hmm. and uh, we probably have a special guest coming. Yes, woo! So we're not gonna spoil who it is yet, but, uh, but let's do, let's let's make it. <laughs> We've happen. been building it up for two episodes now, ready yeah. to go, and we're gonna watch uh, Bride of Frankenstein and the Old Dark House, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I'll probably watch some others. Yeah, I love I mean- James Whale. He didn't make that many movies, so yeah. uh, especially n- not that many horror films. Yeah, but the ones he made, Woo! oh my! <laughs> I can't wait to talk about Frankenstein's monster, the Bride of Frankenstein, the in- oh, the Invisible Man. That's that's the Invisible Whale, One. Right? It is James yeah. Whale, and it's one of my favorite Universal monster movies. And also uh, my favorite Brendan Fraser movie, Gods, Gods and, and monsters. monsters. All right, well check a- check us out next week, and remember to be ready to get afraid. Ooh. Turn on all the lights. Uh, what do you do when Wait, people... turn on all the lights? <laughs> yeah, because you're scared. Oh, okay. Or, no, I guess you want it to be spooky, right? So we should record the next episode with the lights off and us with flashlights under our... <laughs> so just for each other? Yeah, yeah. And it'll be kind I of... I think it'll come across. <laughs> well, until then, my name is Justin Clue. I was Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So, Will, did you pick up the new issue of Film Comment? Yes, I did. Oh, my God. I have a subscription. Whoa. (laughs) It sounds like there's an adult having a conversation (laughs) here with me. Yeah. (laughs) And they changed their format. Shocking, isn't it? Yeah, I think it looks nice. Yeah, who cares, right? Yeah. Format change. I don't have anything to say about it. What? How are there still film magazines in print? And I'm saying this with the um, caveat that I love 
like film stuff, well, especially if it's printed. Hopefully there are just enough people like you and me who, you know, care about quality film criticism and patronize these publications. What do you read? Uh, my favorite, no doubt, of all the written publications that I buy on a regular basis. Fangoria. Shock Cinema. Oh, I love Shock Cinema. Shock Cinema is so good. That is my favorite too. And yeah. if you haven't heard about it, you can actually find it anywhere in bookstores. It has very wide distribution. I don't know how the... Uh, um, the publisher of Shock Cinema did that, but hats off to him. And every issue is, you'll crack those pages open, and there will be reviews of films I can guarantee you have never heard Most of. Most of them I've never heard of. I mean, that's, like, one thing I can say for Shock Cinema is it, it, it is a magazine that really introduces me to stuff I would have otherwise not known. And it'll be, like, crazy stuff, and then you'll see it, and I'll be like, oh, there's a reason I've never heard of this. <laughs> <laughs> and there's uh, long-form interviews with people long past their prime, so they can just, like, deal the dirt as much as they want to. Yeah, it'll be people like, um, a recent issue had, like, Colleen Camp, or... Uh, 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 Christine Rubinek. Yeah, Christine DeBell, uh, Mike Starr, I think was in one of them. People, I, I love these people, you know? And <laughs> and they've been in so many movies and so many of them have like just been bit part actors in, you know, I don't know, like Martin Scorsese, Woody Allen movies, whatever, whoever the great filmmakers are. I think that Shock Cinema may be one of the only magazines that when I pick it up, I just read it cover to cover. Mm-hmm. Like without ever being like, ah, I don't know this movie. I'm going to go to the next article. And it's $5, I, st- I think still, which is insane. Yeah. And I highly recommend that one. Second, probably Film Comment. I love Film Comment. I yeah. like, uh, do you read Sight and Sound? I, not really. I find Sight and Sound really dense and sometimes mm-hmm. difficult to get into. Okay. Here's the thing that with like these film magazines that it's a stumbling block that I sometimes have. That when you haven't seen the film that they're talking about, that you sometimes lose something in the experience. Hmm. But I think after Film Comment, Sight and Sound is like third place of the film magazines I, I, I read. And then there's... Um, Cinemascope. Cinemascope, yeah. Which, if we're talking about, like, dense, difficult prose... I like uh, picking up Cinemascope and not having heard of a single of the filmmakers on the cover. Yeah, uh, exactly. Except Jerry Lewis. <laughs> oh, wait, that was last month's issue. Yeah, I, I don't know what the... I haven't got the new one yet. Um, I like Cinemascope quite a bit. It's a bit elitist. I'm not gonna... <laughs> I mean, it just, has an editorial every uh, I mean, issue not saying a, that it's film el- is dead. Yeah, it's elitist, like, not only in the directors they cover, but also in the tone of the magazine. I mean... <laughs> Let, let's face it it's not a very friendly magazine but i enjoy it no it, it almost feels as if it wants to like distance people it's like the people who stick with us really want to read this magazine i always enjoy a uh, mark Perenson's annual uh, dispatch from khan where which is always like the sourest thing and it has this tone of being like huh can't believe they're programming another mike lee film I mean, how long will it be before they're like you know, I'm just going to retire from movies. Like, this is it. I'm just going to go read books and paint or something like that. Yeah. There's nothing for me here. And I always like seeing uh, Grandpa Jonathan Rosenbaum's... Uh, I love Jonathan Rosenbaum's a, article. A, a roundup of DVDs throughout the world, uh, which I love. It's the first thing I read every... Every every time yeah. I skip to that. Yeah, me too. And he's like, oh, you know, grump about this, grump about that. You should get the Region 2 DVD of uh, Hélas pour moi, because it has an extra interview with Jean-Luc I feel that Jonathan Rosenbaum lives in like a very small apartment just covered in DVDs and one day he'll like reach up to grab one and they'll just collapse on him crushing him forever (laughs) where he will not be found for weeks. We're saying this from love though because I love I love Jonathan Rosenbaum. I think he may be the most quoted critic in this podcast. Yeah, possibly. Possibly. And, you know, you're the real diehards, we read Puzzy Tiff and Cage Cinema. Okay, well, I don't. <laughs> in French. Yeah. All right. 
I'm gonna be honest. I don't read them with regularity because they are, you know, indecipherable reviews at sometimes where you're like, what are you guys talking about? I wish I could read them. Uh, and you would feel that much extra smart, right? Yeah. I mean, did you see that Cine Action uh, went out of business recently? I've never read Cine Action. What? It, it was, um, you know, all the kind of York University Marxists used to write for that. <laughs> like, uh, like Robin Wood, for instance, was kind of, I don't know if he founded it, but he mm. was the real flagship writer for it. Anyway, yeah. I'll, Is that a sign that the Marxists are dead? Well, I, I don't know if it's, it's a sign that print media is dying. Um, print media, while it may not have many years to live, at least we have stuff like the Twitter account of, um, what is it, Art Film Trump? Oh, God. You don't like that? <laughs> yeah, it's all right. I don't know. <laughs> it's a bit lame, to be honest. <laughs> it's too 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 much obvious cuts and stuff like that? I mean, it's it's basically just one joke, which is the <laughs> idea that, of Donald Trump tweeting about art house movies. I, I think once you see the joke once, it kind of wears thin. Wait, 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 wait. Let's, let me stop time for a second. You just said <laughs> that once you see the joke once, it wears thin. And now you're going to try to turn this back on me. <laughs> yeah, the man who just posted the same Mordecai thing. That's da- again. Okay, listen. How First of all, how dare you question my comic genius? That's like Sideshow Bob and the Rakes. Come on. So are you just waiting for it to get funny again? I First <laughs> of all, I know it's funny. So <laughs> no, that's not true. But, but yes, eventually there will come a week when you see that and, and you will laugh. It may take 20 years, but... <laughs> 20 years? Because I'm not committed to this gag. I think the day I will laugh is when I'll see it pop up. After and, I've died? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like, I'm back from your funeral and I'm just like laughing and tears are streaming down my That's cheeks. That's what I'm going to do if I find out that I'm going to die. I'm going to just like program it so that it just tweets that Mordecai tweet for like 10 years. I'll spend my last day shooing aside my loved ones so that I can do this. <laughs> And as I laugh and smile, I'll be like, rest in peace, Will, as my cursor goes to mute. <laughs> I just love it. <laughs>